might recall that Epaphras had reported to Paul about a clear and present danger in Colossae. The result was this letter to them. In the beginning of it, Paul commends them for their faith and the obvious uh, demonstration of that in their response to the gospel, as well as their uh, love for one another. But there's also some problems there, and it wasn't a sound system. <laughs> I, I have to, Diane was telling me they were uh, last week at Great, it was Grace Bible Church too, wasn't it? In uh, Florida. And maybe it's just Master Seminary graduates have this problem. There was another Master Seminary's graduate that is down there and uh, said the church was a lot like ours, including sound system interesting things that go on. That was encouraging. I hope, at least. Phil, right? It's encouraging that other people end up with things that the pastor doesn't cooperate with the sound man, doesn't turn on his mic, and then he's trying to adjust it on the, on the fly. Sure. <laughs> Thanks. God is gracious and... The Colossians had responded. It was obvious in their, their faith, their response to the gospel, their love for one another. But there was also some dangers. In Colossians 2, he gives some general warnings. Uh, part of that was warning them not to be deluded from the uh, false logic that was being persuade, uh, presented to them by people who were very good in orientation, how they would speak. You know, false logic, skilled speech can bring a lot of confusion. Now, the defense against that was walking in Christ, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, and Christ is busy at work. He is rooted them in our faith. He is building us up. He's establishing us, and the result of that is clear praise to God that overflows. Paul also warned them about being taken captive or carried away as booty, uh, by vain, empty, deceptive philosophy. And we talked about that last week. The tradition of men, the elementary principles of this world, uh, all figure into that to persuade us away from the truth, to substitute something else for it. The defense against this is that Christ is superior in every single way. Jesus is superior in his nature, his work in the believer, his position. He is superior in what he gives to the believer as well. He provides a superior circumcision, one not made with hands, one that is a circumcision of the heart, not, and so it's a better circumcision than what was given to Abraham. It's one signifying the new covenant. A superior baptism, not one that's outward, but the baptism that comes in the spirit and fire that makes us part of his body, 1 Corinthians 12. Superior in that it gives us life. We who are dead in our transgressions, he has given us life with Christ. And superior in victory, because Jesus conquered death, he also conquered the devil and his power and gives us a hope for the present and for eternity of life in the present and eternal future with him. This morning we're going to start examining a few of the specific warnings that Paul gave to the Colossians at the end or toward the end of chapter 2. And it's in these specific warnings that we know what three types of false doctrine were being presented to them. There was legalism, asceticism, and the mysticism. This morning we're going to concentrate only on the legalism, but I want to read through the whole passage so we can get the context. If you follow along, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using, in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, there have always been two extremes that have occurred within the church, opposites of each other, that are dangerous. One is legalism, the other is licentiousness. One places all sorts of restrictions on conduct, while the other seeks to remove all restrictions. Legalism focuses on keeping the law as a means of godliness, while licentiousness rejects law, believing they have spiritual license to do whatever they'd like to do. Both claim to be expressions of true righteousness, of true spirituality. The reality is that both are poor substitutes for both, spirituality and righteousness, because they both end up leading to blatant sin. I want to talk about licentiousness first. The rise of Gnostic thought increased the practice of licentiousness in the ancient world, and it's still around today. They made a dichotomy or a split between the material and the spiritual, And they reasoned that because the material is evil and can't be corrected, then it really doesn't matter what you do. That was their thought. Their view is that since it couldn't change, do whatever you'd like to do. Only the spiritual really mattered when it came to righteousness, and that could be just kept in your mind. They viewed salvation, Christ, as a spiritual issue that had little to no effect upon how they actually lived in the physical world. The Apostle John wrote 1 John dealing with this kind of heresy. And in 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, he writes the following, correcting the error in specific. He says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. In other words, there is no dichotomy. What we are spiritually is to affect directly what we do physically. The Gnostics were wrong. Another error that developed in licentiousness is revealed in Corinthians. Here, they became spiritually proud, and based on that, thinking they have all gifts, they could do whatever they'd like. The fact was that though they thought they had all gifts, and in fact, actually, all gifts were present there, They were living blatantly sinful lives, and Paul has to correct them over and over again throughout the whole book. He explains in 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 14, the true nature of spirituality is in Christian love. And Christian love would not do the kinds of things they were doing. True love is not going to be factioned all up, as the Corinthian church was. True love would not take... um, one another into court before unbelievers in legal action. It's a shame to Christ when that happens. True love would correct sin instead of tolerating it as they were in 1 Corinthians 5. True love uses liberty in Christ properly and never 
never uses it as a, a means of causing another believer to stumble into sin. True love never uses, is considerate. But tragically, the error of the Corinthians is still commonly found. We still find people like that around. They have liberty in Christ. They flaunt it to the detriment of all around. And worse, there are those that do whatever they do and then claim it's because the Holy Spirit led them to do it. I've run into many people over the years. The Holy Spirit led me to do this, and they are basically simply justifying their own behavior. But that doesn't work. The Holy Spirit does not lead people to violate the commands, the principles, the precepts of God's Word. When that's happened, it's never the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not lead a person to abandon their spouse, shack up with somebody else, as I had one woman try and claim. It's God that led me here. I'm sorry, God didn't lead you there. You led yourself there by your own sinful lust. The Holy Spirit does not lead people into idolatry or fornication or adultery. He doesn't lead them to homosexuality, theft, coveting, greed, materialism, drunkenness, reviling, lying, stealing, or any other of the host of sins are listed out in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. Christians who practice sin and then seek to justify that sin instead of repenting from that sin have stepped into licentiousness. That's the point. When we, instead of repenting when we have done something wrong, confessing to God, as 1 John 1, 9 tells us, and gaining His cleansing and walking with Him in holiness and righteousness, when we try to justify it instead of repenting, we've moved into licentiousness. We can do whatever we want, so we think. But Hebrews 12 warns us when we have that kind of practice, God, because He's a loving God, because He is a good Father, is going to chasten us if you're legitimate. If you're not legitimate, he won't chasten you. So always praise God when he chastens you. It is a comfort to know that when I have done wrong and God's hand comes upon me from the negative sense and chastens me, I'm your son. Thank you. Okay? It's a confidence builder. I'm not illegitimate. I'm not illegitimate. We long for his chastening to correct us. Now, legalism, and I really wanted to talk about licentiousness to put the contrast between the two, legalism is the opposite. The term legalism is used in a variety of ways within Christianity, and there's a lot of different ways it's expressed, yet it always is the same at its core. It defines spirituality by a strict code of conduct that is determined by men rather than God. That's legalism. Now, to be sure, those holding to legalistic standards can often cite particular scriptures to justify their particular rules. But even in those cases, context is almost always ignored so that God's actual commands are overturned and replaced by the code of men. Let me give you some examples of that because it was a common problem Jesus was dealing with with the Pharisees. For example, Matthew 15, verse 9 Jesus gave them a very strong warning. He says, But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They switch them around. They're not teaching what God said, though that's what they're supposed to be. They're instead teaching the precepts of men. In Matthew 23, which is a section, the first part of it is all on his pronouncing woes on the Pharisees. He pronounces this woe in verses 23 and 24 on this issue. 
He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They're missing the whole point of God's law. Yes, tithe the, the, the minuscule things. But when you forget the greater provision of the law, you've missed the boat. Now, the interesting thing is if you really examine the lives and practice of the Pharisees, you find that they weren't purposely trying to replace God's law with their own code. They weren't purposely trying to neglect anything in God's law. In fact, we find the opposite. We find that they were people who were extremely zealous for the Lord, but unfortunately without knowledge. Paul describes himself in these terms. Romans 10, 2 is one of them. He was zealous, but it was an ignorance, zealous for God but not in accordance with knowledge. In Galatians 1.14, he states he'd been extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions. Philippians 3.6, he explains that his zeal as a Pharisee is why he was oppressing the church, throwing them in jail and having some executed, because he felt that their, their rejection of what he felt Judaism was all about was a rejection of God. But he was ignorant of the truth, and until Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus and he saw the light and was confronted, he thought he was doing God's will. Zeal without knowledge. We also find that all their various teachings, traditions, started as an effort to obey God. They were very concerned that they would do something that would break one of his commandments. And so they'd come up with rules trying to protect themselves from that. Just an example of this is they would not use God's covenant name. They wouldn't say it. Why? Because they feared that if they said it and somehow it was said incorrectly, they would violate the third commandment not to take the Lord's name in vain. So even when they'd be reading through the scriptures, when they got to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, they wouldn't say Yahweh. If you Germanize that as Jehovah, they wouldn't say that name. They'd say Adonai, just means Lord, because they were so concerned of violating something. But zeal without proper knowledge can be very dangerous. The strongest language Paul uses anywhere is in Galatians. He expressed himself because there was a legalism there that had perverted the gospel. It had replaced the grace of God and returned to an effort of self-righteousness under the law. Extremely serious. And so he says that those who would practice such things, that were advocating such things should be anathema, cursed of God. That's strong language. But that is the seriousness of what can happen in legalism. Now here in Colossae, it's not that bad, at least not yet. It could go that way, but that's not what they're facing. He doesn't use the same kind of language there. But it was severe. This was a legalism being advocated, wasn't attacking the gospel, but it was redefining what it meant to live a righteous life. And that still is serious. Redefining it. This legalism sought to define godliness in accordance to adherence to religious rituals with self-denial and practices that arose out of mysticism. In other words, it wasn't attacking how you get saved. It was attacking how you're supposed to live after being saved and getting it all wrong so people were not living the way they were supposed to. 
a redefinition of righteous living from living in submission to the Spirit of God to living according to a now, code the things he that mentions here very well fit in with Judaism and it particularly with the practices of the Essenes, one of the sects of Judaism. In fact, some commentators are pretty well convinced that it was probably someone from an Essene background that had come and that's where this was coming from because it matches so well with the practice of that particular sect. Now, legalism still exists today in a variety of ways and into a variety of extremes. There are those that, yes, that threaten the gospel itself. They do threaten to pervert it into, I am saved by works of righteousness rather than self-righteousness, rather than God's grace extending me to me, Christ's righteousness, saved by works rather than by faith. And then there's the other extreme where it's really just a person pushing a little bit too hard on their personal convictions about a manner by how a righteous person should live, and they become obnoxious about it. But again, the common element here is this, defining spirituality by some code of conduct determined by men instead of God through his word. That's the essence of it. Now, Paul begins there in verse 16 with a command. Let no one act as your judge in regard to, and then he goes on to specifics. Don't let them act as your judge. The common position for a legalist is to set themselves up as a judge who will render a verdict without trial and then condemn those who don't keep his standard. You don't do it the way I do, therefore you're guilty. It's that simple. Now, Jesus spoke against that mindset. Look over in Matthew chapter 7. You can keep your put something there in Colossians, but look over Matthew 7. We're going to spend a little bit of time here simply because this passage is often misunderstood, but there's an important point here. He says, starting in verse 1 of Matthew 7, Do not judge, lest you be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? It's a little minuscule speck, and there's a tree growing out of this other guy's eye, and he thinks, I have better eyesight to help you. That's the picture here. Now, the Pharisees often condemned Jesus and his disciples for the things they did. Let me give you some examples of these. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees condemn the disciples for not washing their hands ceremonially before they eat. And they said, you're violating the tradition of our elders. Jesus points out then that they may have been violating this tradition that had developed. Uh, it wasn't in the Mosaic law, but it was a tradition that developed, and they may have violated that, but by comparison, what the, the disciples were doing was nothing because the Pharisees, by their traditions, were disobeying God's clear command on how to treat their parents. It was this sense, you're picking on them for this little minuscule speck and you got this tree growing out of your eye and you think you're in a position to help? It's ludicrous. You're hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the Pharisees condemned the, the disciples because they were going through the fields and grabbing some of the grain. It had been ripe and they were picking it shucking it in their hands, rolling it, and then eating the grains. Now, that's exactly what Deuteronomy 23:25 says they can do. The Mosaic law allows it. But the Pharisees had made up their own rules concerning the Sabbath and said, no, you can't do that, that's breaking the Sabbath. 
It's not anywhere in the Old Testament. It's not in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's not there. They were doing what they were allowed to do, but they were violating the traditions of the Pharisees. Later in chapter 12, Jesus purposely heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath to demonstrate them what God requires is compassion, not sacrifice. It comes from Isaiah 1.17, Micah 6.8. And that he, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. Later the same day, he heals a man who was demonized. He was deaf and blind. The Pharisees' response to that was condemning Jesus for breaking the Sabbath and even saying that he was doing it by the power of Beelzebul, another name for Satan. See, legalism can be very vicious. It's a very important point here to note the rest of Matthew 7, verse 5, because many people have ended up concluding that, well, Christians are never to judge at all, anytime, anywhere, anyplace, and that's not true. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is contrasting the practice of the righteous with the practice of the self-righteous, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's what's going on. The same thing is true here in chapter 7. The condemnation, the attitude of the Pharisees was one of a judgment where they were guilty themselves and yet picking on little things on somebody else, though they were violating the law itself. Jesus says this in verse 5. You hypocrite, first take out the log from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You're still supposed to help. You're still supposed to be involved. Jesus was not prohibiting all judgment. Instead, he is warning against a certain manner of judging. We could never help a brother who stumbles into sin and obey Matthew 18 if we remove all discernment to judge, look, is there a sin problem here or not? That's the whole process of Matthew 18. It's to become discerning, find out if there's a problem, try to correct the problem, and if there is no problem, yes, there is a judgment and a disfellowshipping that goes on. Galatians 6, 1 through 4, Paul expands on this whole thing um, of how we treat. It says, you who are spiritual, help those who have stumbled, who have fallen into a trespass, but he talks about the manner of it. First, examine yourself. Understand and come with humility that you could stumble as well. And then go and help. Pull them out. Help them bear that burden. So he is not in any way condemning all judging. He is condemning a certain manner of judging, the legalistic fashion of doing so. You violated my standard, therefore you're condemned, rather than what does the Word of God say about this? Let's go back to this and make sure we're doing what God says. That's the big difference. The Pharisees had placed a greater importance on keeping their traditions than obeying God and showing compassion. That is the nature of legalism itself. It removes context from what is being done and places a higher value on these traditions developed by men rather than what God has actually said. Now, that still occurs today, and it occurs in both the theologically liberal camps and in the theologically conservative camps. Both have it. They just have different standards that they've decided to use. We also recognize the opposite problem occurs when people demand the right to do nearly anything they want and then intimidate those who question them, accusing them as, you can't do that, you're judging me. That's usually they're out. No, we're supposed to. 
we're supposed to be involved with one another's lives. Why? We want to walk in holiness and righteousness and glorify our Lord. We're in the body. That's why we're in we this show team. love to one another by helping bear one another's burdens. Now, Paul gets specific here. He mentions several particular areas in which the Colossians legalists were doing this judging. Now, the first issue is in regard to eating, to eating. Now, this would encompass both what they ate, how it was prepared, and how it was eaten. There are dietary restrictions in the Mosaic Law. Some laws concern the manner in which certain foods will be prepared or the meals will be eaten. For example, in Exodus 12, it is very specific on Passover, how it's prepared and how it's to be eaten. There were two issues that would bring about judgment of the legalists. The first was the actual violation of a dietary law within the Mosaic Code, and the other was a violation of the traditions that had developed around that. So it could be either one. Now, an example of a tradition that would be violated, we already talked about in Matthew 15, was the ceremony of washing your hands. Okay, understand it was ceremonial. It wasn't like we tell our kids, wash your hands before you eat. We want you to go in there, use some soap and water, hot water, and scrub them up real good and get the germs off your hands. That's why we tell you to do that. There was a little dipping. In fact, if your hands were real dirty, all you did was spread the mud around. You created it. It wasn't cleaning your hands. It was just a ceremonial kind of thing. All right? That's what the disciples failed to do that irked the Pharisees in Matthew 15. Another example actually arises from the Mosaic Code, but it's just how traditions develop. In Deuteronomy 14.21, and actually there's three different places this law is repeated, is you were not to boil a kid, a young goat, in its mother's milk, okay? That's the prohibition. Do not boil the kid in his mother's milk. From that came a tradition. We do not want to violate this, so we're going to have two sets of dishes, two sets of cooking utensils. One is for all the things that will be used for doing something with milk, and the other is for all the things without it. I remember my dad going up when I was a kid, he was a carpenter, and having putting in extra cabinets for a lady because she needed a lot of extra room for her milk dishes. She had two sets of everything. Tradition. It's not a mosaic code, but you can see where these things develop. Now, the Christian is not obligated in any way to keep the traditions of men. We're only obligated to keep the word of the Lord. Submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, obey the Lord. That's our obligation. Now, violation of the Mosaic dietary laws is a different issue. Why? There were clear restrictions placed on the nation of Israel in what they could and could not eat as part of making them a distinct people holy to the Lord. That's what all these things were about. Leviticus chapter 11 records particular kinds of animals they could not eat. Now, some of them, I'll just list a few of them, you'll probably say, whew, good, (laughs) I wouldn't want to eat that. Others, you're like, oh, man, that that would have been good. For example, one of the first ones is pigs. I love pork. I would have hated to have been under that. A ham sandwich is is, is fantastic. And and pork ribs, barbecue pork ribs. Oh, man, I'm glad I'm not under those restrictions. But some of these other things, you know, you know, I still haven't had rabbit, Diane said she'd fix it for me if I ever shot one. That's because we found a uh, recipe for Hassenpfeffer in one of our older cookbooks. 
but I'm not too anxious to eat a rock badger, a mole, or mice. Now, they were also restricted with, uh, they could only eat fish, aquatic animals that had fins and scales. If it didn't have fins, didn't have scales, they weren't supposed to eat it. That eliminates some things that are, I don't think you really want to eat those anyways. Then there were other things they couldn't eat. They could not eat certain birds, like eagles, vultures, pelicans, storks. I'm sure you're all anxious to go eat a stork. No, probably not. They could not eat geckos, crocodiles, lizards, and chameleons. You're probably like, that's okay. I'm not anxious about that. Then they were generally restricted from eating all insects, except a few. They could eat locusts, grasshoppers, and crickets, and I'm sure they felt that was wonderful news. Good, I get to eat my crickets. You don't think so? I guess you've never been quite that hungry, huh? In addition, there were animals that they had to eat could only be killed in a certain fashion. They couldn't eat an animal that was strangled. They could not eat roadkill, all right? If they found it dead, they couldn't eat it. It had to have had its juggler severed and the blood poured out. So there were restrictions. Now, this became a difficulty in the early church because all these restricted animals or things that weren't prepared properly were considered unclean. That was the mindset. And we know from Acts 10 that Peter had a terrible time trying to think past the idea of, I can eat those things? Three times in that vision, Acts 10, was Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And here's all these animals. No, Lord, I've never touched those things, much less ate them. And then he goes up to Cornelius and goes, that's what this is about. The gospel can go to the Gentiles. What God has said is now clean is clean. Regardless of what was said before, I'm not under that anymore. In the early church, there was a lot of contention over this. In Acts 15, the question came up because the Gentiles in Antioch were, some were saying, you've got to keep all these dietary laws. They sent the question down to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem who discussed the issue, went over it, and their conclusion was, is no, you do not have to keep the Mosaic law its regulations to be saved, and neither do you have to keep them to be a good Christian. Paul's second missionary journey was him going out primarily to spread the news of this to the churches he had started in the Gentile areas, up in what is now uh, Turkey. But there still could be a lot of pressure there. If you had grown up always believing that eating that thing is unclean and God detests it, would you be anxious to eat the thing? In fact, you would look askew at someone, why are you eating that? I know It's right here. It says this is bad. You shouldn't do that. And so there was a real struggle. And sometimes there'd be those who were struggling with this themselves that would place it upon others. In fact, it got so bad in Galatians chapter 2, we find that Paul recounts that he had to oppose Peter because those putting this kind of pressure even affected Peter so that he became aloof from eating the Gentiles. He wouldn't eat with them anymore. Why? Because Gentiles were considered unclean as well. So I'm not going to eat their food with them. I'm going to stick with just the the Jewish people over here because we're doing it right. And Paul had to face to face just challenge him. Peter, you're wrong. Even Barnabas got carried away, it tells us. He feared the party of the circumcision. Now, it's important to note as well here, though, that there is no requirement to disobey the dietary laws. Do you understand that? You don't have to keep them, but there's no requirement that you have to disobey them either. You don't have to eat those things if you don't want to. And that's important. People can voluntarily follow whatever dietary restrictions they want to place upon themselves, 
as long as it doesn't become a requirement for their spirituality, i.e., they think they're somehow more spiritual because of that, or Can't they be place placed that on pride. somebody else. Dietary restrictions neither bring additional favor from God nor make someone spiritually superior. Look over in Romans chapter 14. We're going to hit this a couple times. Paul addresses this issue, and he gives us the principle, Romans chapter 14, 1 through 4. Here's what he says. He says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he meet all things. He who is weak eats vegetables only. He restricts himself. Verse 3, Let not him who eats regard with contempt he who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's the principle. You have freedom either way. You can restrict yourself if you want. Just don't become proud about it or think you're more spiritual because of it. Or you can eat it. Either way. Don't judge each other on this stuff. Paul's own practice was use his freedom in Christ with wisdom in order to further the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, he explains that he would voluntarily restrict himself when he was seeking to work with the Jews. Why? Because they would see these things as abominations, unclean, and they wouldn't listen to him. So it was no big deal to him. In fact, especially since he grew up in it, it was probably fine. I don't need to eat that stuff. I want you to understand who Christ is. Meanwhile, with, his, with the Gentiles, he'd eat whatever was served. Why? He's not going to put himself someplace like he's aloof from them. He's better or more spiritual. You serve it, I'll eat it. And then he went one step farther. If he was with people who he knew had a problem, he would simply restrict himself. That's it. Why? I don't want to do something that would unnecessarily offend my brother or especially encourage them to do something they don't have faith to do yet. Their faith had not matured to that point that they realized their freedom. I'm not going to force this issue on them. And so he'd simply refrain. And that's the same practice that we should have as well. Those who demand dietary restrictions be kept, whether they arise from the Old Testament or some other source of tradition, are on very dangerous ground. Keep your finger there in Romans 14. We're going to be coming back to that. But look at 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Because here Paul warns about the origin of legalistic practices concerning foods currently, and actually some other things. 1 Timothy 4. Verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrine of demons. That's pretty serious. How will we know? Verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God in prayer. I think most of you can think of religious groups that have done exactly that. They have forbidden marriage, or they have placed all sorts of dietary restrictions upon their people, thinking this is the way to a godly life. Paul says that idea, that mindset, is from demons. That's pretty serious, isn't it? Now, the second issue that Paul brings up is regarding drink or drinking. 
Now, the same principles actually apply to what you consume that's a liquid as well as what you have to chew up. That would seem pretty simple. But in the Greek, it's, they're actually separated, so I'm dealing with them the same way. In Romans 14, 17, Paul made it just very simple. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. True righteousness is not a matter of dietary restrictions. It is a matter of walking in the Spirit, walking with God. He summarized in 1 Corinthians 10.31 a very simple thing that covers all of it. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. It really is that simple. Whatever you do, eat, drinking, the normal things of daily life, simply do it for the glory of God and you'll be fine. You don't have to memorize any kind of list of anything. Simply do it for God's glory. Now, I do want to caution here, though, about intoxicating drinks because Scripture does give some strong warnings, and I'm always careful of those who want to go into licentiousness. They go, oh, we can do whatever we want. No, not whatever you want. Whatever God's Word says you can do, you can do. We go back to what it says. When it comes to intoxicating drink, whenever it passes over and you've had enough that you are drunk, understand you have passed into sin. Okay? That's very clear in Scripture. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, Ephesians 5, 18, 1 Peter 4, 3, and a whole lot of other. Drunkenness is always listed out as sin. Okay? At the same time, you need to be wise and heed the warnings. Sometimes I think that's where the problem develops is you can have it, but then it's abused because you don't realize the dangers that are there. Proverbs 20, verse 21 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Be wise. Understand what it is. Proverbs 23, 29 through 32 goes on and says, It is a viper that brings woe, it brings sorrow, it brings contention. It actually it says it brings wounds. People tend to fight when they're intoxicated. So if you drink wine, beer, or liquors, understand there are dangers use utmost caution. But the same thing can be true with food as well. Everybody knows I love chocolate. I have to be careful. Too much chocolate, and I wear it. Expanding belly. And yes, at 52, you can have a pimple problem. Okay? Face breaks out. And that doesn't look good. Pastor, are you going through adolescence now? Well, no, I was a long time ago. It's just I had too much chocolate. Anything we can abuse, freedom doesn't mean to go everywhere with it. There is wisdom we apply to everything, okay? The third area that Paul warned about them not to let themselves be judged was in regard to holy days, which he lists out in three specific types, the festival, the new moon, and the Sabbath. The Mosaic Law designated quite a few feasts and festivals, among them Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Booths, and there's some other minor ones. In addition, there was a monthly sacrifice at the new moon that Leviticus talked about. Then there was the keeping of the weekly Sabbath. So in many ways, we can say that Jewish life centered around these calendar events. But a major change came with the coming of Messiah and his resurrection from the dead. These things were not what they had been before. They had been looking forward to something or remembering specific events, but now the reality had come. There would be a freedom 
that came with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you kept your finger there in Romans 14, look back at it. Romans 14, look at verse 5. Romans 14, 5. Because now he deals one with man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. That goes back to that same principle. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That includes what day you may observe or not observe. Again, Paul is not telling them they have to disregard the festivals. In fact, we know that Paul continued to keep a lot of them. He would want to be back in Jerusalem for Passover. Several of his missionary journeys he talked about. He's trying to get back in time for that. We know he kept some of the vows that uh, were uh, the Nazarite vows. He kept those. He was still free to do these things as he desired. But after he became a follower of Christ, he didn't have to keep them. That's the point. I'd point this out too. Those of Jewish descent, they still have every reason to keep these festivals, these feasts, as a remembrance of God's grace to their people. They're still wonderful events to remember. This is what God has done in the past. We can celebrate it. He is simply saying here, Paul, is that you don't have to. If you observe them, great. If you don't, that's fine too. You cannot judge each other's spirituality based on whether you do or not. Now, most people seem to understand this principle in regards to festivals and new moons. But this idea of the Sabbath, that's a harder one for folks. When I was a kid, as a, growing up in a Baptist church, Sunday was Sabbath. I never could figure that out because I also told Saturday was Sabbath. So is it Saturday or is it Sunday? Which one is it? And then you meet a Seventh-day Adventist and they say, no, it's only Saturday. Well, why do they keep telling me I have to keep all these restrictions and I can't go out and play on Sunday? And you can't watch that and you can't, there's all sorts of things you couldn't do on Sunday. Do not go shopping. Do not go, all sorts of stuff. Well, it comes from this idea. So here's the question. Why don't Christians observe the Sabbath? I'm not talking about Saturday. I'm talking about the concept, the Sabbath. Well, there's several. First, it's not a requirement under the New Covenant. We just read in Romans 14, we have freedom to observe a day or not observe a day. We observe it to the Lord or don't observe it to the Lord. Either way, we're the Lord's. Okay, that's the first. Second, there's no New Testament commands for Christians to observe the Sabbath. None. Third, there are no commands in the Hebrew Scriptures for Gentile nations to keep the Sabbath. None. In other words, those things indicate that the Sabbath was very specific to the Jewish nation as part of the things that separated them from all people as holy to the Lord. Next, neither the Jerusalem Council imposed it, nor did Paul ever warn about keeping it. If it was going to be part of something Christians should do, it certainly should have been the Jerusalem Council, and it was not. In fact, we find the opposite. We do find warnings about requiring it. Romans 14, Colossians 2, where we are, Galatians 4 deals the same thing. We're not to require it. In fact, Paul calls it among the, those things that are worthless elemental things. Now there comes a the question, well, why do Christians worship on Sunday? Well, it really comes simply out of the practice of the early church. They met together on the first day of the week in honor of the Lord's resurrection, which is why we worship on Sunday. 
Now, what's the bottom line of all this? It's very simple. It is not wrong for a Messianic congregation to worship on Friday night. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It is not wrong for Seventh-day Adventists to worship on a Saturday. That's fine. It's not wrong for churches that have Saturday evening services. It's okay. And there's nothing wrong with worshiping on Sunday morning. But it doesn't have to be at 1030 or 11 o'clock, which by tradition, by the way, is from a rural community. It's so you could have time to milk your cows and feed everything and, and then get cleaned up and come to church. Any of you still milking cows? Uh, I didn't think so. You can start early, you can start later. It's up to us. That's the freedom we have in Christ. We simply cannot require other people to do it our way and then judge them if they don't do it our way. There's a lot of freedom in Christ, and that's what Paul is talking about here. He sums it up really in verse 17 with a very practical reason for it. The issues of eating, drinking, observing the holy days. He says, these things were mere shadows of what is to come, the substance belongs to Christ. A shadow can reveal the basic shape of something, but it's not the reality. The reality casts the shadow. The shadow is not the reality. In this case, the reality is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's point is simple. Why let someone judge you based on shadows when you already have the reality? Why would you let that happen? Jesus is the fulfillment of all the types and the shadows of the Old Covenant. He is the bread of life who came out of heaven and satisfies our hunger for eternal life. That fulfills that, the, that feast. He is the one who provides the living water that satisfies the soul, that the one who has it has springs of water bubbling up within them to provide eternal life, John 4.10. He is the fulfillment of the feast, for he is our Passover, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He is the first fruits from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15. He poured out his spirit and gave birth to church on Pentecost. That's that feast. Acts 2, he atoned for our sins, redeemed us. He forgave us, reconciled us. That's the day of atonement. All these high holidays find their fulfillment of the feast in Christ. He is the life, the light of the world, John 14. We have the reality. Do not trade it for a shadow. So the conclusion really is this. Legalism is dangerous, no matter which way you go. Extremely dangerous if it replaces the gospel, but also detrimental if it replaces righteous living with some code that's not really righteous. God sets the code, not us. We strive to walk by the Spirit of God in holiness and righteousness before Him. And while we do not want to fall into legalism, neither do we want to stumble into licentiousness. It's just as dangerous. And perhaps in American Christianity, it is the greater danger. We are not under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ. That's The New Testament puts it exactly that way. James puts it in those words. We are to be at the business of making disciples, which the last part is what? Teaching them to observe whatsoever things I commanded you. There are obligations we have in obedience to our Lord but he is the one we serve. So let us walk by the Spirit of God, not in the flesh, and bring glory to our God by living holy lives, reflecting Christ living through us. That's the point that Paul is making. We are going to celebrate communion.